Reef Therapy by Reef Builders is brought to you by ICP Analysis. What's in your water? Good morning, everyone. We want to thank Mazna and everybody for having us here and giving us the opportunity to, uh, you know, just kind of talk about reef and give you a nice in-person live session of reef therapy. Um, can you hear me all right? Yeah. All right. Um, so we wanted to just kind of do a snapshot of the reef aquarium hobby today. You know, you've you probably noticed a lot of things rapidly changing and moving in the uh, livestock space and the equipment space. Um, so yeah, that's going to be our discussion. Yeah, and I think we want to start off just, uh, I guess, you know, for, for us to have done it for so long, I mean, I, I think I set up my first reef tank in 95. I mean, I was, you know, pretty young, but um, why do we still do it? You know, what, what is it about the hobby that's still fun after 20 years? Um, definitely seen a lot of hobbyists come and go. Um, and when you asked me that question as a potential starter question, I, I was kind of stumped about it because I, I, you know, when I really thought about it, I don't know why, but then I think I went further and further, you know, when you ask yourself a why question, then that draws another why question and that draws, and finally it all kind of boiled down to when, um, at least for me, when I was a kid, um, if I see a puddle of water, I want to see what the hell's in it, right? Or a lake or a pond. Like, I'm always walking up to the shore. I'm some, I know probably a lot of you are like that, too. You want to see what the hell's living in there. And that is still true today. I mean, I'm, you know, 45 years old, and if I see a pond, I got to go look at it and see what the hell's, you know, going on in it. And so I guess the best answer for me while I still do it is having a big glass box of water in my house with stuff growing in it still... I think appeals to that side of things, right? I still want to see um, what's going on in that tank. I, and, and then, of course, to be able to curate it and control what was in it, um, it just that doesn't go away. So kind of a abstract answer, but honestly, I think that's why I still enjoy the hobby, you know? I think when I was, uh, pretty, you know, about 10 to 15 years in, I would ask myself all the time, like, why am I setting up all these aquariums? Why... <laughs> Why am I compelled to nurture all this aquatic life? There's not really a great rhyme or reason that, you know, we've, a lot of you guys have probably been keeping aquariums for some amount of time, but if you just detach yourself and just kind of step outside yourself and consider what it is you're doing, it's kind of crazy, right? <laughs> how much effort and how much we do for our animals. There's not really an end goal. You can't eat it. You know, obviously some people are making a living at it, but that's supported by legions and millions of people who are just compelled to keep aquariums, um, freshwater, saltwater, reef. Um, you know, we, we don't want to be like completely critical. That's why I want to start off on a little bit of a lighter note. Um, but for me, and I think Mark will definitely agree on this, is one of the things that we really still love about our aquariums are the stories that are attached to the corals. You know, especially the corals because they're, te you know, somewhat fundamentally like immortal. If you keep cutting them and fragging them and sharing them, so we, I went when I just got to his, you know, house, saw his tank a couple days ago. He had a chalice coral that him and I bought at Cappuccino Bay Aquarium. <laughs> 18 years ago and I had it for a long time and he had it for a long time I lost it but now he still has some so I'm going to get it back and there's just this like awesome like circular path um, for 
these corals in our care. And I'm sure many of you have experienced this where the, you know, corals have a story attached to their name to just to, to their discovery. And, uh, it's just like really awesome to share those corals and see what they do in somebody else's tank. And it's crazy. Sometimes when I look at some of my old videos and photos from my tanks, I'll, I'll be watching a video of a tank from 13 years ago and I'll look at it and like, I still have that coral. <laughs> I yeah. still have it. And I'll just go over and be like, man, you've been around. You've been with me for so long. Yeah, I just had to get rid of a leather coral that, I don't know, maybe best estimate, it got about 18 inches wide. I had trouble getting it into a five-gallon bucket. Um, and somebody asked me, well, how old is that coral? And, you know, I'm glad I uploaded every digital picture I ever had into, uh, you know, the Apple iCloud iPhotos because you could just scroll back, you know, and I'm like, okay, all right, right. Oh, I still see the coral. I still see the coral. And I think best guess was like I bought it in 2005, but I would, you know, I'm, I don't keep a log book on that stuff. So uh, it's kind of fun to always go back and see your old tanks and, and realize that, you know, that one coral you have sitting in the corner You've actually had a lot longer than you think. It's just you keep swapping out tanks. You've stuff. had them longer than your kids. Y yeah, I've got, <laughs> yeah, like that clownfish that uh, you, we bought, I think, on that same day. You know, that clownfish is older than my kids and old enough to vote. And so I think that's what keeps you in it, too, is that eventually they become your pets. And, you know, are you really going to get rid of a fish you've had for 18 years or, you know? Um, Another one that I really like, though, is as far as... Uh, immortal coral strains is there are certain strains that have names and we remember when they were introduced you know the i'll never forget the watermelon alien eye selling on ebay for four hundred dollars in like 2001 <laughs> that was unheard of and uh you know i do really good with bird's nest but i always i don't know why i have a lot of challenge with the ponape bird's nest so every few years i try it again and so one of the things that's that you know we're not thrilled about is the namings you know the naming of the coral names you know pick pick a lane right if either we go with some scientific names and use some uh, descriptive uh adjectives for it or you pick a strain name and you kind of stick with that but even the strain names are not being you know uh adhered to I'm sure you've seen this where, like, uh, the watermelon alien eye, I've seen it, like, streaking a lot of chalice corals uh, over time will actually really morph, you know. Uh, the mummy eye is one that will just transform over and over and over. And if you don't have a piece of kind of a more normal, original-looking piece of mummy eye, um, it can be really different. So I'm seeing these old corals that him and I have known for a decade and a half or two decades um, changing names. And there's a lot of... Uh, legacy associated with that person, with the tanks they originally grew in, uh, the, how they look under different varieties of lighting. And so we're losing some of that legacy, but not sticking to the names. And I'm not asking people to get as militant as I am about the scientific names and drilling down to the species, but we want to, we want to experience that continuity for another 10 to 20 years so the next generation can go back and watch videos or dig deep into forums or listen to this session of retherapy and know what specific strains of corals that we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I names have to have meaning and for me um when you take a coral that already had um a name with lineage and then you rebrand it 
you're, you're hitting the reset button on that lineage. And to me, that might help sell the coral as something new and exciting. But to me, the bigger value is the lineage of the coral itself, right? Um, an Oregon tort or, I mean, I guess well, something like a Bali green slimer is a better example. You know, I think a lot of SPS heads have seen that coral. It does get cheaper, right, as more and more people have it and more and more people propagate it. But the value shouldn't necessarily always be in the price tag. It should be in the history and the lineage of that coral. And you could now rename it as toxic Hulk acro or something. And you just hit the reset button on that coral. I don't really know. I mean, I could probably look at it and say, well, I think that's just the same coral as a green slimer. But uh, for me, I, I, I'm not in coral sales, but the lineage of the coral is more valuable to me than, you know, the price of the hot new coral that actually was just the same coral. But speaking of the green slimer, I, there's there's. We're, we're kind of uh, suffering from our own uh, growth from uh, you know too much of a good thing. There's been so many hobbyists, and so the information is not being uh, you know kept by some you know safekeepers like ourselves and some of the older generations. And so uh, about half of the green slimers out there are not green slimers. Yes, they are staghorn. Yes, they're neon green. Yes, they might have come from Bali, but original green slimer has more of a whitish green tip as it grows. And there's, you know, like half the green slimers out in the world now that are called green slimers that have this orange tip. It's, it's amazing coral, but it doesn't tie back to the legacy of being that first acro that most Americans learn to grow. In Australia, they have a different one. It's called the Dallas acro. And it's like, it is almost exactly, not exactly exactly the same but same growth same shape it's a staghorn it's almost the same shade of green but the base color is different so they have their own uh, legacy uh, analog to the green slimer and then in Europe, oh my goodness, this is another one, the Milka Stylo. That thing has one of the, if you've listened to Retherapy, I'm sure you've heard uh, us talk about the Milka Stylo, but that thing is the only stony coral that we get from the Red Sea, and that was Europe's first SPS coral. And I'm seeing people just completely forget what it is. They won't even do a cursory search. I mean, a pro tip for anyone trying to come up with coral names, just Google it first. Google any kind of combination of that word because, like he mentioned, the Hulk acro. There's so many green acros or green SPS that are called the Hulk. And it's like, man, come on, use a little bit of uh, uh, creativity and originality. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're starting to lose some of that. And um, there was a time... There was a time when this hobby was a lot more uh, academic based and just really interested in the truth and really interested in um, what corals actually were. There's a lot of information to be gained from the scientific side of things, right? So not that long ago, well, actually, it's now we're going on seven or eight years. Uh, what we all called ACAM lords, you know, I know it rolls off the tongue. It's a great coral. Um, but when they was de redescribed as a micromusa, and then we looked at all the corals we, we were calling micromusa, we're like, oh my God, that makes all the sense that it does, right? And so now you all almost have people pushing back on what is what the coral is actually classified as but if you actually collect acanthastrias like i do you know you cannot put an acan next to a lord because the acanthastria will 
eat the Lord. He will destroy it. And we've uh, seen this several times now with uh, orange lobophilias. Virtually every orange lobophilia is an acanthastery pachycepta. The Australian coral exporters and collectors, they didn't know it was an acanthastria, but they knew that they, they, they couldn't put this certain spiny orange lobo with the others because it would eat them, it would sting them, it would destroy them. So that's come some of the practical information that is not being passed along with the name simply because people refuse to just kind of, you know, learn a couple new names. I'm not asking people to pronounce it super awesome, but man, when you know the coral names and whether it's strains or the scientific names for the classification, there's a lot of information that is packed in and associated with that name. Yeah, I think about uh, one of the commenters on one of our um, one of our shows that we threw up on YouTube was talking about Goniopora and, you know, he ended up with a Goniopora Bernardpora. And uh, that's a much different coral than a stochese, right? Which is your stereotypical flower pot coral. And so, you know, you've got this aggressive encrusting coral now in your tank and it's potentially, you know, doing more than you want it to do in your tank. So it, it's stuff like that where the names still do matter. And I, I do understand from a vendor standpoint, if everybody's selling ACANs and, and you decide to recategorize that category as Micromusa, that might sow some confusion for people. But at the same time, and I don't want to get into, I know there's someone talking about the Lacey Act and regulation, and you know, that will be a good talk to listen to. But I, I think about, you know, one, our relationship with scientific institutions and uh, science is obviously a very broad term. But then I also think about regulation that's coming. Um, you know, it, if you think about torch corals and hammer corals and which ones are actually euphilias and which ones are not, and if they ban euphilias, well, what does that actually mean? Um, things can get really confusing, but I think if we want to combat some of that regulation in a good way and advocate for ourselves, it would help if we knew what we were talking about as well, you know? Um, it's hard to go into an argument and be already misinformed and try to win that argument and convince people that, hey, you know, we're passionate about these corals. We know what the differences are. Uh, here's how your regulation might be a bit broad and heavy handed. You guys could actually, you know, make it a bit more effective. And also, you know, you know, here's a coral that's got a very narrow endemic range and here's one that's everywhere, you know. So if we ban this coral from this country, but we can still get it from this country, you know, again, it's just, it gets tricky, I think, to advocate for ourselves in the hobby when uh, we don't have a good relationship anymore with institutions because we've gone crazy and we're like coming up with all these crazy Pokemon coral names. And, and then, you know, we don't even quite understand how to argue what they're trying to ban. Um, and again, I don't want to get all get off my lawn, but I just remember the days where a lot of the faces in the hobby that we all you know kind of worshipped were uh scientists right randy holmes farley craig ben I and mean, we still worship these people and it's not like they're they're gone but you know and obviously there's been a shift with social media you know and there's more of the youtube personalities and stuff like that but it's 
I just hope that those personalities also just continue to foster that more, again, broad term. I don't know how else to put it, but like that science side of the hobby. Um, and He's not- right. It's, it's hard to actually have a linear uh, discussion about this because it's a, you know, coming in from all sides, right? So at some point, there's going to be a lot more regulation associated with, with probably everything we do in our lives, not just keeping aquariums. And once upon a time, you know, the pillars of the broader aquarium hobby, especially especially the reef aquarium hobby, these were, you know, academics and scientists and uh, researchers, and they brought us real tangible knowledge, you know, like who here hasn't struggled with parasites and pests and disease? And just in the last few years, a lot of these um, acro-eating flatworms and monopora-eating nudibranchs, they've been described and re-described, but they didn't just do that. They categorized the, the actual life cycles of tagastes on your acropora or acro-eating flatworms on your acros and nudibranch on your, on your montipora. So we're over here, you know, just kind of shooting in the dark trying to treat some of these coral pests and parasites but there's these papers that came out i mean just in the last year or two and they tell you the exact life cycle of aefw and monte nudies and so that's the kind of academic tools that we need some real tangible uh data that will help us break the life cycle of these creatures and you know i've i've helped to i've tried to bring attention to them on on reef builders just you know in the blog but without that information we're just going to be shooting in the dark trying to eradicate these pests right we're just all happy having you know we're not happy but we're content or resolved to just live with some of these pests and parasites and i guarantee you in the future if you look in the freshwater side of the hobby Almost all the plants that you get for a freshwater tank are tissue cultured, right? So what that means is they've isolated the genetic material of that plant and they start and they, you know, they grow in huge numbers, but they're just about as clean as they possibly could be. There's, you know, a little bit of bacteria associated with them, but no pests, no algae, no snails, no anything that you don't want in your tank. And this is absolutely, and it has to be the direction that we go to in the future. You know, at the studio, our biggest challenge is not maintaining alkalinity. It's not, you know, trying to get the right lighting uh, intensity or color spectrum. Uh, it's a mostly, you know, you know compatibility between corals as they grow a little bit bigger and these residual pests. Um, you know, I don't have most of them, but I swear every time I think I've stomped out monopore and Udibronx, they, they creep back up and it keeps me from being able to just, you know, plant corals wherever I want because I have to think of which pests are which or where which corals that they're on. And so for sure in the future, my future of the reef aquarium hobby is something close to in vitro corals and you know i'm not expecting actual in vitro corals but i know that we can get them really clean and oh my goodness how much easier would it be to keep a reef if you didn't have to dip you didn't have to worry about aquarium stds i mean i know you guys know like it's sometimes you want to buy that coral but you don't want to have that vector uh into your aquarium that's possibly going to jeopardize all the success you've already done right you can get like 99 percent of the way and you want that last coral and you bring it in it's got fish disease or coral disease but the tools 
to get past that are absolutely based in science. And those papers are freely available on Google Scholar if you'd only search for them, you know? And so we're, we're making things harder on ourselves by getting further and further away from the scientific roots where this hobby began. When it goes back to, um, I think you said it once, convenient information spreads quicker. Um, and so, you know, when we want to get more sciencey about something, it's, it's more complicated. And nobody necessarily wants to always deal with that. But it's like the long game for the sh- versus the short game. The long game usually has a better outcome, right? I mean, we've talked about other areas beyond just, you know, coral taxonomy. But if somebody comes and asks me, you know, do I need an RODI, right? The easy answer if you're making a quick YouTube video or you're writing an article is yes. You know, because even if you've got pristine water, it's not going to hurt you to run an RODI. But if you're living off of a well and you have 500 TDS, then maybe it's not, you know, maybe you definitely do need an RODI. But nobody wants to hear, you know, do I need an RODI? And the person responds, well, it's complicated. You know, uh, I need to ask you 30 more questions before I could give you an answer on that. Um, and that's just a mild example, but I think. I think that convenience factor and just, you know, I just want to give the quick and simple answer also doesn't help, right? I mean, it, it moves us away, uh, I think, from having a better discussion and solving a lot of the problems. Um, and you see it on the forums where I sometimes think some of these forum posts where people are debating that are 30 pages long is multiple convenient answers arguing with each other and then you'll get the one guy who writes like a long essay and has some really good ideas in there and everyone just blows right through that one right and so um i don't know i i don't know if uh i I was trying to segue a bit off of the naming but also to try to just say that uh we need to be i guess comfortable with complicated answers and that you know nothing's perfect and um you know, the coral that you yesterday called an acan is now a micromusa. And then be curious on how does that relationship tie into other corals that it might be more closely related to, um, stuff like that. It's just, uh, I just see a lot of easy, easy answers. And, and I think that's more riddled with landmines than you know, we're diving into We it. have the original skeptical reefer here in the house. And you know, you don't <laughs> you don't get any favors by challenging somebody's position, <clears throat> right? Anytime you just kind of check someone's uh, statements about something regarding to an aquarium, that's not the easy route, right? It's harder to just kind of put your foot down and say, I don't think so. And for sure, almost anything you read online, or even if you hear it at the fish store, you want to verify with multiple sources, right? Like, I, I have a pretty good memory. I write a, basically a book report on reef builders twice a day, and I still have a huge library of books that I fall back on for reference. But this convenient information spreads faster than good, hard, impractical truths is something that I've seen, we've all seen uh, many, many times. I've, you know, 
I'm sure many folks have heard, you know, oh, you have red bugs on your acros. Okay, get a dragon face pipefish. But if you use just a little bit of critical thought, like why would a pipefish run around looking for these tiny, probably slightly toxic, uh, you know, little morsels of food when they have like a micro ecosystem of actual copepods and amphipods and mice to eat? Which one would you eat if you were a pipefish, right? I still, I, th I remember someone offering that in a forum as a possible solution. And over time it has spread and spread and spread. And I'll be at aquarium stores and I'll just overhear it. Someone saying, oh, I have, you know, red bugs on my acros. And someone in the staff just, you know, stead, just directly telling them, oh, get a dragon face pipefish, as if that will actually solve your problems. But also, if you do a Google search, you'll find that there's been a few aquarists who have tried to put like 10 dragon face pipefish in a small tank with just one colony and saw like virtually no predation of that. And I feel similarly um, about flatworms, not just coral flatworms, but uh, the red planaria that are in your aquariums, you know, I still remember this one thread where someone offered, hey, maybe spring-eyed damselfish will eat them, right? I have a tank with eight spring-eyed damselfish, and there's plenty of flatworms in that tank. If they're starving, okay, maybe they might pick one here and there, but I'd like to take care of my fish and I feed them good food. Would you want to eat a toxic flatworm or like, you know, nice bits of, you know, meaty frozen seafood, right? And once again, if you just use a little bit of critical thought, um, I'm, I'm really inspired by Albert Einstein and his thought experiments. These are experiments you can just hold in your mind. You don't need to go out into the world and do something really elaborate, but uh, thought experiments will help you kind of cut through some of this noise, right? And those are just a couple examples of convenient, uh, you know, things that people think that they know. And I worked at aquarium stores for a long time, and it's just so much easier to just, instead of giving someone a 12-step program to, you know, cleansing their tanks of this, that, or the other, it's just easier, and it's way more lucrative to just say, oh, yeah, buy a few of these, buy a few of those. If it doesn't work, we'll try some, you know, flatworm exit or this other thing, but I really feel that way too much of what we think we know in the broader aquarium hobby is fueled by just commercial interest, and it's not it's not malicious, it's just convenient. It's so much easier to say, okay, here we, we have a product for you. We have a silver bullet for you. And you know, I'm not saying you should do this across the board. You know, GFO does remove phosphates. You know, algae scrubbers can you know, make a difference. But if you look at the whole problem holistically and think about who's giving out some of this information or where some of this information first started coming from, um, if there's a dollar attached to it, you know, you might just re-examine some of that knowledge. Yeah, and that's, I guess, goes back to what I was saying about um, reading a bunch of articles written by folks like Rob Tunin, Rob Tunin, Craig Bingman, Randy Holmes Farley, like, they're not really trying to sell me anything, right? And now it's like, okay, I've got a problem in my tank, and I go on YouTube, and it's somebody trying to sell me something or peddle something, and I am a cynic. I go, okay, well, wait a minute. You know, I know they're probably trying to help me, but I have to, I can't ignore the fact that, you know, they're, you know, telling me there's a product to solve all my problems. Um, but it also goes back to, uh, you know, with the convenient answers, um, 
being able to change your mind, right? I mean, I think we all need that a little more in this world, period. Um, I think we all try to have these sticking points and that's the hill I'm gonna die on. Um, did you guys go to uh, Sanjay's talk about nitrates yesterday? So I'm a diehard, and he's gonna hate me for saying this, refugium guy, because he likes to call it calerpa scrubber, but that just doesn't roll off the tongue. Um, and I've done carbon dosing. I have an old inland aquatics turf scrubber. Am I making the mic bounce? Sorry. Um, I've, I've ex- I like methodologies, and I'm always looking for something better, you know, and, and the 20 plus years I've done this. And for some reason, when I give up and just throw a bunch of Kato, back in the day it was Calerpa and my son throw light over it, my tank just locks in. Like everything just kind of starts to settle in and life, you know, life flourishes. And of course, I've always just been convinced that it's, you know, being a nutrient export. It's also being a refuge, right, for some microorganisms. Um, so I just stick with it. And I, you know, he's not a big algae growing guy and I and he's not into substrates and I am and I'm like look like when I do this recipe for me I'm not saying everybody in the world needs to do it it works for me um that said I sat there and listened to Sanjay talk and when he did that mathematical breakdown about how much nitrate his algae uh, macro algae scrubber is removing I just kind of went huh you know because now I've got a problem in my brain Um, because I like my tank, I like the way I run it, it works for me, but the reason I thought it was working may not be the reason anymore. And so I'm sitting there going, well, it doesn't look like I'm exporting a hell of a lot of phosphates and nitrates if his answers are true, but I can't reconcile that my tank does better when I do use a refugium, right? So, uh, I mean, that was the the bar conversation for me. I wanted to pick everybody's brain. Like, why do you think that is? Like, what what is going on with this, you know? So I think that's the other side of it is I wasn't about to just vehemently disagree with Sanjay and argue with him and tell him his math is wrong and I'm going to die on this hill. It was like, okay, now I got to figure out why refugiums work for me and that, you know, and now I kind of want to remove it again, you know, and see, do, do I go downhill again? Maybe, maybe the tank would always fall into that um, stasis of things starting to roll and lock in together, regardless of whether I threw that algae in the sump and lit it. You know, maybe it was a timing thing. It's just, uh, I don't know. So, but that, that goes back to that convenient answer thing, right? I'm sure if you pull up a, a debate on a reform about refugiums, you know, you see that debate kind of get, it's this or that, and there's nothing in between, so. I have a slightly different perspective on, on algae scrubbers, and this is not implicitly stated in the Triton method, but I, like the, like the math that Sanjay demonstrated in his talk, I always actually looked at an algae scrubber more as a CO2 scrubber, right? So it's pulling out a lot of CO2, depending on how you run it, and it's also phytoremediation. You know, there's, you can't, you can't put a chemical media it for every bad thing that you want to remove for your aquarium, but just the very fact of the biomass growing from your algae scrubber is just inherently absorbing heavy metals and toxins that we haven't even become familiar with, you know? So that's one of the ways that I look at an algae scrubber. And so um, I was running a big old barrel of spinning ketomorpha and it was really, really cool. And um, 
uh, I enjoyed it very much, but as it got a lot bigger, it started to uh, pull out too much of those trace elements, and then it was competing with the corals. And then I started dosing a little bit more iron and keto grow and other things for it, but my nitrates and phosphates are you know zero point zero zero according to many test kits, and I was just I started looking at my very beautiful barrel of spinning ketomorpha that I love very much, and I'm like. I'm not here for that. I'm here for the coral. So I don't think that this is useful for me. But no, he's totally right, though, about there's a few things that, you know, once you've been reefing for a long time or keeping in freshwater aquariums, there's a couple habits that you know work for the way that you keep an aquarium. And one of the reasons I, you know, push back against a mechanical or, you know, just kind of automatic, I need an RO unit, I need an algae scrubber, I need a refugium, is... I worked in aquarium stores for a long time and there was never someone who came into the tank having problems because they hadn't done enough. They were always doing something. And you see that today more than ever in our aquariums is people are overdoing it. No one ever lost corals because they didn't dose. That just won't happen. The corals will slow down. They might not be quite as colorful, but man, I can't think of a one parameter besides salinity that is you know, really gonna harm your corals or your fish if you underdo it, right? We've talked a lot about uh, this through this weekend as you see build threads and build videos where a man is very excited about all the toys and all the bells and whistles and they've got union, ball, ball valve, union, ball valve, and it's like multiple layers and you're like what are you doing you know you're really just not focusing on the art of reef keeping and if you think about this in every problem that you've ever had I every problem that I've ever had I have to use every ounce of self-restraint not to overcorrect right? Whether your alkalinity, your calcium came down, you want to bring it back up fast. You, you start uh, playing around with a new trace element uh, and you see that it's you know, having an impact on your tank, you want to do it more. Mm-hmm. And it's just so hard to just tell yourself, okay, let me not chase any numbers. I'm just going to add a little bit and over a long period of time, my core is going to be happier. But I just, I can't really think of any solid examples where you're going to get in trouble because from underdoing it, right? I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, this is one of the, the biggest things and you see all these threads and all these, I mean, it's everywhere now, social media, videos, articles, maybe some podcasts too, just building and building and building and building and they're not just letting their corals grow. Yeah, and I'll I'll confess to two things I'm horribly guilty of, and so I can preach all day long, but I do this all the freaking time. Um, One is, you know, I was saying to him once that in the time that I've been reef keeping, I've never discovered a magic elixir, right? Like, beyond dosing calcium and alkalinity type supplements, I would say, or maybe the exception being amino acids. I have seen, you know, some beneficial stuff with amino acids, which actually started back when we had red bugs and we didn't have a way to get rid of them yet uh, with Interceptor. Um, there was a definite tangible difference that adding the amino acids allowed the corals to exist for some time longer with the red bugs. You could literally see the turnaround. Um, so that was maybe the best ima- magic elixir, and I, I still do believe in aminos, but let's just take that one off the table as the edge case. 
Um, to this day, I still hope for a magic bottle, right? Like when that friend you really trust in the hobby is like, man, I started dosing this new trace element or I started dosing barium and holy crap, man, my corals look so much better. Like you want him to be right, right? You're going to go <laughs> online, you're going to buy that bottle and you're just, it's, and it's, it never ends up working out for me. I don't know about you guys, but I've not, I still just dose calcium alkalinity. I still dabble with aminos kind of on and off, you know? Um, so that's one mistake I always make, um, in terms of overdoing it. Um, I don't, I don't want to get preachy. So no, I, no. But so it's, I want to give you an example of how I screwed up within the last year. I was dosing a very potent uh, trace element that was made up mostly of metals, and I was just seeing fantastic results, just incredible <laughs> colors. And guess who bought it next, right? <laughs> <laughs> and... You know, there's a like a two-week dosing period where you're trying to you know bring the levels up. These are all really esoteric trace elements. It's not practical to set an ICP test every single day to figure out where you're at. And I was just, I was just happy. My corals are doing great. I'm just seeing so much stuff perk up. And so, but after two weeks, I kept doing the saturation dose of the of the early days, and you know, corals are looking amazing and they're getting super colorful. And then uh, about the third week. Um, after I was like, oh, all right, I should probably cool it a little bit. I started losing some corals and I got super freaking lucky because it was isolated to the very thinnest branched acroporas, which grow really fast, but it was very, very strange. It was a very small subgroup of acros that let me know they weren't doing okay. They were crazy colored, you know, zeovit tanks are like rarer, so they may be fading from your memory, but some of those corals were looking like that. And, um, man, I had written up a, a few corals because they were just looking so bright and pale, you know, and just not like, like too bright and too light colored. And I got really, really lucky because um, I had stopped doing the saturation dose before I saw these symptoms. But, man, I was not happy with myself because I knew I wasn't hitting the numbers. But I just want you to know we're not like magical reefers we're human beings and we're still always making mistakes and we're just it takes a, a lot of just uh i don't even know how to say it but you really have to be mindful of overdoing it no matter how long you've been in the reef aquarium hobby and like i said you will never get in trouble by doing a quarter dose of whatever is being prescribed or just less 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 um so yeah i just wanted to share that example and i was lucky that it was a fast growing uh dragon type deep water acros uh, i didn't lose any full colonies um, but i had a beautiful orange dragon if any of you guys are familiar with that and i was just super lucky that there was, you know, a small piece on the original mariculture base and then the big piece, and the big piece, you know, pretty much all died out. And the small piece that was actually isolated just never um, uh, succumbed to this mistake that I did like several months ago, maybe four or five months ago, you know. So this is, I'm not, we're not over here. We had, even the lessons that we've learned, we have to relearn them. Well, the other one that uh, I could tell everybody else to not do this, and I do it all the time, is... If I find a problem, if I have a little bit of cyano, if I have a little patch of algae, or maybe I see a vermitid snail in my tank, I go thermal nuclear option, right? <laughs> I, I'm, I have to solve this now and it has to be solved within a couple of weeks instead of just letting it be and maybe it'll sort itself out. It's just, it's, it's like my brain is wired to always try to fix or solve something that's wrong with the tank. 
But at the end of the day, it's a little patch of cyano isn't the end of the world, you know? Is it Instagram worthy at that point? You know, probably not, but you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure some of those Instagram people are stirring up their sand bed and just, you know, letting the dust settle and like, okay, here's my tank, you know? And I'd love to see what their tank looks like when they come back from vacation, right? Um, and I am so guilty of this. I just need to just, you know, not react to the one thing that's wrong with my tank. Um, I was complimenting somebody's tank here this weekend. And the guy was like, thank you. You know, um, all I see when I look at my tank is the, everything that's wrong with it. Um, it, was, it was actually Steve from the Georgia Aquarium. You know, I was complimenting how much better you know, the coral reef has become over the many years that I've lived here. And I, I think he was the one that said, you know, when I look at that tank, I, I just see everything I, I need to fix or, you know, whereas, you know, the people that go to the Georgia Aquarium are standing in front of and going, holy crap, this is amazing, right? Um, but I see that in the hobby too, right? Somebody might come over. I was, I was nervous for him to come crash in my house because I'm like, oh man, my tank sucks right now. My, my sand bed's got some funky algae, you know, turfy algae growing on it. I'm trying to figure out, you know, but you know he well maybe he kept it to himself maybe he thought my tank was terrible and he just didn't tell me but uh but you know it's a it's you're always going to see the thing you need to fix and then you're going to focus on that and then maybe you go and fix that and now you made everything 10 times worse when everybody else is probably perfectly fine with that tiny patch of cyano when they come over to your house and so maybe you know maybe don't go nuclear and and then create a a cascading effect that could be 10 times worse you know so he is totally right about Long-time reefers, only seeing the flaws in their tank. Not not only, but if you can have a beautiful reef tank, and if there's just one coral that you know that's struggling, or you know there's a persistent patch of just something you don't want there, it's more front and center in your mind than it should be. And if somebody looks at your tank, they'll never see it. All right, here's a perfect example. Um, I fragged out uh, some red dragon and kind of a blue tip dragon uh, not too long ago. And I had the rock out of water for, you know, a good like 15, 20 minutes. And these are, th- again, thin branched acros. Don't like to be out of water nearly as much as some of the thicker boys, right? And um, I had it out of water for quite a bit. And uh, right before reef stock, I noticed that that blue tip uh, acro um, was receding inside. Not super fast, it wasn't super nasty, and the knee-jerk reaction for anyone nowadays would be, take it out, we gotta frag it out, we gotta reset it, we gotta restart it. And um, I've actually weathered some of these things, and it takes, again, so much self-control to be like, you know what, this is not RTN. This is just some localized temporary stress because I had it out of water for too long or you did something, right? And I had the reef stock after party and had a ton of visitors to the studio for the first time ever, right? Never had that many people. Not a single person saw it. It was right there in the front of the glass. No one saw it. And you know what? That patch didn't continue. It didn't continue to recede, and I just let it go. And um, so it's it's really true that um, we are dogging our own aquariums and just loving on other people's tanks because you don't know, you know, some of the things that they might be uh, challenged by or suffering from. And there's definitely. Um, an aspect of social media nowadays where everyone is giving you a sanitized representation of whatever it is that they're doing. And you guys, you guys all know this. You know this in your bones. 
But when you're scrolling Instagram and you see, you know, those cars that you're into or somebody's fruit from their garden or their reef tank, you're like, man, why does my tank look like this? And you know this inherently, but man, I'll tell you what, I was uh, subscribed to a, or following a bunch of different uh, coral pages on Facebook and I'd see all these crazy colors. I'm like, man, like my corals look really good, but these colors are kind of crazy. I'm like, I know about yellow orange filters. I've been there since the beginning. I got a giant lineup of them. And it was like months of looking at these other people's pictures, you know, that sanitized online. Just one day I was like, you know, let me go grab my glasses. Cause I almost never grab my glasses. Now we're looking at my corals. I'm like, oh my God, my corals look even better than theirs. <laughs> and so you really have to be mindful. There's a lot of psychology involved. I don't, I, you know, I can't describe it, but um, it's, especially when I started out with the Reef Builder Studio, I felt the need to always wipe down the class, to always have crystal clear water, to never show any algae or aptasia or whatever you know is going on. And several of us are actually making a concerted effort to show those flaws. You know, show you a beautiful, like perfect reef tank, and then you zoom in, you, you enhance, enhance, enhance. <laughs> you show like, hey, look, look, I got a patch of detritus right here. I got cyano that never goes away in this spot. I got aptasia under this rock that I could never get to. And so this is something I want you to, to really take away from this talk is like, your tank is much nicer looking than you think. You know, and those tanks that you see online, whether the freshwater or saltwater or just everything is super sanitized and it's not reality, you know? So that is one of those things that, uh, it's, it's weird because it's like the beauty covers for, of aquariums, you know, we've already talked about this in the nineties, you know, the, the covers of beauty magazines, making young girls feel bad about their body. And now social media is making us feel bad about everything right. about ourselves. Yeah, I think it's I think it's fun to look at nice looking tanks. I just uh, it's interesting that you know even in my own habits I would spend more time on Instagram than say a reef aquarium forum, um, and that wasn't just out of you know I want to look at pretty tanks and stuff. The forums sometimes get I don't know you know it's a lot of noise. Yeah, somebody asks a question on how to fix something, and that just spirals into an argument between two people and. <laughs> um, and then you wonder if the guy actually got the help he needed. Uh, um, but, uh, I, you know, it's funny. I, so I, I'm, I'm sure like you, I have other hobbies. And uh, I am a hyper-focused person, so I can't spread my attention across things evenly. Um, my wife hates that about me. Um, so I will hyper-fixate on one thing, and then I'll hyper-fixate on the other thing. Um, a doctor once told me that that I must have had ADD or something as a kid, and this was before they had you know pres prescribed medications and treatments and stuff. And so you know it's like oh it's, maybe it's a coping mechanism, you know. So the way that you avoid getting distracted is you just fixate on one thing. Anyway, more about me than you need to know. But um, I'm happiest with my reef aquariums when I'm more fixated on my other hobbies, not because I'm ignoring it and so I'm not thinking about it, but when I'm busy really getting into figuring out how to play a song, I'm on the guitar. Uh, I love to go fly fishing, backpacking, so I start planning my trips and, you know, how can I lighten my pack weight and this and that, and I just get fixated on, you know, looking at maps. And then I'm walking by my tank. I'm like, that's a good looking tank, man. Oh man, that fish is doing really well. And it's because I haven't been on Instagram. I haven't been on the forums. I've been on other forums, right? I've been on fly fishing forums or guitar forums, 
but it took the attention elsewhere and I could just enjoy my tank for what it was. And, and, uh, when he was over at my house the other day, uh, on Thursday, I kind of said that I was like, you know, sometimes when I'm not as focused on the hobby, I enjoy the tank more. I think that's why sometimes I disappear and crawl into a cave because I don't really go to Macna's very often. I don't, you know, I don't do a lot of the conferences and stuff like that. I'm sure when we started re-therapy, some people were like, who the hell is this guy sitting next to Jake, right? Because I don't really put myself out there much, but that I think is a way for me to enjoy the hobby more. Um, and I'm not saying go crawl into a cave, but um, it's interesting if you can observe that in yourself that when, when summertime hits and you want to be outside and so your tank kind of just goes on autopilot, like just... Uh, you know, go look at your tank and see if you actually enjoy it more, you know, in a, in a less intensely focused way, right? Where you're just constantly, like, it's the thing that rules your brain, right? It's, it's living rent-free in your brain and you're worrying about the Valonia and you're worrying about whether you have the best skimmer. Um, it's just sometimes it's, it's better to be a bit away from it and just enjoy it in that way. I think that's what we were sort of talking about in our podcast about coasting sometimes. It's good to coast in the hobby, so. You have to learn how to do that right and he's he's absolutely right you can't be reefing all the time you have to to learn to let some of these small flaws go and just kind of sit back and see you know if that recession in that coral is going to proceed or if that valonia doesn't move it doesn't grow it doesn't expand then who cares valonia is actually kind of cool looking yeah. right if you think about it aptasia is also you know like they're kind of neat they're a little you know you just but if if you're just always wired into it um you're not going to enjoy your tank as much and i've actually had this conversation with um a lot of locals and other uh, aquarists that they're always talking on their tanks but then i'll go over and check out their aquariums and i'm like what are you talking about man your tank is amazing um you know there's you, okay, you have some ideas of where you want to take it, but futzing with it all the time, that's just a recipe for burning yourself out. But the other aspect of social media that is robbing us is that sense of community. You know, r aquarium clubs and just clubs in general, that used to be a place for us to get together, commune, get face to face. And, you know, before we could all take a lot of pictures and a lot of video of our tanks, we did tank tours. We went and saw what people, other people are doing, and that's like the most enriching thing for your aquarium experience. Even if you know all the things, I know all the things, but I still call everyone and message everyone. Anytime I'm doing something new, I will pull like 10 to 12 different people. You know, I just started dosing phosphate to my aquariums. Well, not just, you know, like a few weeks ago, I hit up Richard because he's been, his tank has got a sweet spot of phosphates that other tanks wouldn't. So I was, you know, you know, pulling him to just understand a little bit more about the upper limits of phosphates, right? And by when other people come to see your tank, you know, they are going to have a different point of view. And it's not, it's not so much about ego, but you, if you only see these criticisms of yourself and your own aquarium, and then, you know, just a few local guys or a dozen folks from a club that know what they're looking at, see your tank, and they all tell you that you're doing amazing, it's going to push some of those, you know, self-hate out into the back of your mind. And so I feel like that's still something that we need to get back to. 
is is visiting with each other like we're doing here at aquarium conferences but going to see each other's aquariums there is no substitution for seeing the aquariums in person seeing the dimension and for me one thing i always love and i'll never get bored of is seeing how people get where they are you know you know and i can consider different ways to tweak some of my different tanks but you know you can talk all you want on a forum and show me all the pictures and shoot me over a video and you know i'll have a, an idea of what you're talking about but when you see it in person in real life oh my god it's just it's going to inform like what you should be doing with your lighting you know you, what you should be doing with your water flow and i, I mean i feel like comparing notes with you know a, a small community of your local area that's that is you know the epitome of reefing you know that's something we've almost completely lost the 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 internet and the pictures and the social is pushing us apart because you know i'm sure some of us here have relatives that we know exactly what they ate yesterday and have been up to for weeks and you haven't talked to them on the phone in a year you know, but you know exactly what they're up to. So that's, this is one of those things I'm really trying to push folks to, to go visit each other's aquariums. Um, so yeah, you know, we have, uh, we have a lot of, uh, get off our lawn moments. Yeah. We try to, you know, limit it down. And so, you know, we want to kind of end on a note of, uh, some of the cool things that are happening. Um, it's a double-edged sword that the hobby has grown so much that the information is is not kind of being preserved and, and cherished as much as some of the old guard would like. But there's a lot of creativity out there. There's so many more people um, that are trying out different things, you know. Uh, I am not a fan of people fetishizing their pH and keeping their pH super high and keeping it super narrow. And the way they talk about it, um, like that's the achievement. I talk to plenty of reefers who talk to me about pH, 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 and they don't say anything about what the corals are doing or the coralline algae is doing. And it's kind of this blind, beyond number chasing at this point. But you know what? At the end of the day, a lot more reef tanks are running more alkaline than they did, than they did a few years ago. You know? And so you got to take the good with the bad. And oh man, one of the coolest things that I've seen recently that I'm keeping on my desk because that's just kind of low key blowing my mind every time I see it is we've had access to 3D printers for a good solid decade now. And people are printing all kinds of goofy things for their tanks. But one thing that I love is that little carrier that you can put a frag plug in and then that carrier goes into a container. That coral never touches the edges. Do you know how long we have struggled with trying to protect our corals and, uh, you know, cushion them on from point A to point B? And I got this one frag at Reefstock that came this carrier that went into a, a lid, reusable plastic, and I'm just like, it's still open. It's still open in the jar. I can literally pull the carrier and put the coral in the tank without ever touching it. Not that I don't like touching corals, but that kind of innovation. So simple. That coral never has to bump up against anything. It's never going to be exposed to where a little bit of algae can grow. We're spending so much on corals these days that, yeah, you can throw a little $1 3D print to give it like this, this perfect, uh, basically a car seat for like a, a small child. And it just, it's, it's amazing to see you feel it's transported this way because, you know, you know there are a lot of very soft, delicate tissues covering very sharp delicate skeleton and it's just really easy to to poke them and break them so um yeah there's a there's a lot of cool things happening um i love the realization of certain uh, uh 
fully-fledged aquarium products that came from the DIY community. You know, you guys see a Trident or uh, an Alcatronic and you see a fully-fledged machine. And I remember the guys who originally started making those in their garages or basements. Both of those machines started as DIY projects, you know? And so it's really cool that the hobby's gotten so large that it's going in every direction. Yeah, and I mean, not to beat the, in, the social media horse to death, but in the context of what he's talking about, um, I heard an interesting quote of, you know, when there's um, something to solve, right? A beginner sees a million possible solutions, an expert only sees a few. And I mean, take beginner and expert out of it, um, but sometimes it's the guy who's not arguing on all the forums and he's like, we've never heard of him, right? He's, or her, sorry, but I, you know, we, just a reefing hobbyist out in some corner, just not really, doesn't want to get on the computer and argue with somebody that may be doing something really freaking brilliant. And then one day, you know, a buddy goes over and goes, holy crap, you know, and then that becomes now a new step forward in the hobby. Um, whereas the people that are yelling, get off my lawn, like we might not come up with something like that, right? Because we've like, we've tried so many things and failed. We're like, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. That's not going to work. Right. So again, going back to the DIY, sometimes it's some hobbyist that comes up with something that then becomes the next Product versus the companies themselves, right? That have their own R and D happening. Um, so that's, I think, the fun part of interacting and communicating with people beyond just a ten-second video. You know, because um, I've I've been surprised by that sometimes. Going over to somebody's house, and you know, they've just rigged up some random crazy thing that I've never even thought of on how to solve a problem. I wish I could remember. Something. There was a conversation just this weekend where I was making, I was, I was just bringing up this thing, and somebody was like, "Well, why didn't you just try this?" And I was like, "God, oh, I'm not gonna cuss, but you know, I was like, <laughs> I was pissed at myself because it was just like I had a blind spot, right? And this person just saw right through it and said, "Well, you could have solved it this way." I, I'm sorry, I can't remember what the conversation was. Uh, if it comes back to me, I'll bring it up, but. Um, that's where I think the innovation in the hobby happens is, and that's why I think things like this are, you know, fun and having dinner or having coffee with somebody that you met at the conference and just chatting things over. I think that's where some of the best ideas come from, you know, or you have your mind changed about something. I'm seriously thinking about pulling the Cato out of my sump and just seeing what happens now because Sanjay wrecked my brain yesterday, you know, so. <laughs> um, we just heard some you know a, a cool trick and you know, I know for a lot of you guys that do actually grow a ketomorpha scrubber you know the classic way is to put it in the tank put some light on top but you already know what happens there right you get a lot of algae growing on top you get a lot of cyano uh, growing on top and it just starts dying down from the bottom and one person in this room he was telling me that he was lighting up from the bottom and that allows the macroalgae to be on the top and grow downwards in a much more holistic way. And I'm, you know, looking forward to learning a little bit more about this technique. Um, but yeah, I've, I've lit macroalgae from the top with submersible lights from the sides and it never occurred to me. It's like, hey, maybe there's this awesome benefit to putting the, the lights underneath because then the macroalgae can grow down and it's not going to get all scuzzy on the top. So that's, you know, super important to keep your... Yeah, yeah. so I remember what it was. I... 
I was moving from a new tank, or from an old tank to a new tank, right? Different aquascape. You can never get the rocks back together. I had all these mature colonies, right? I'm like, I'm never gonna get all these things to fit in this new tank right. So I said, I'm just gonna reset, right? Take a frag of every coral and just regrow the coral so I can do the aquascape how I want. And, but I was complaining, like now I've started over, now I gotta wait for everything to grow. And somebody here said, well, why didn't you take that acro instead of one frag, you took like 10 frags and planted in one area because that would have turned into a colony much quicker. And I just stared at him like- That was, it was rich. It, was for it rich? Of, for, yeah, for both of those. For and I was just <laughs> like, I didn't want to say thank you. I wanted to cuss him out because I was so mad, right? I was just like, what? No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, seriously, I took one frag of a Jason Fox acro and I was like, okay, I'm going to plant that here. And, you know, now it can grow with the different flow and the different light of my new tank instead of maybe planting like 20 frags of the same coral in that spot. And it would have been a colony a lot quicker, right? I'm an idiot, but um, now I know, you know, but that... That eureka moment wouldn't have transpired if I wasn't here just chatting with him. It doesn't help me now, uh, <laughs> but you know my next tank. If I ever have another tank, I'm definitely going to do that. So yeah, no, I think it was really fun. I think we, you know, uh, we're in a fog when we started and definitely warmed up to our, you know, typical reef therapy tone and style. Uh, we really want to thank Mazna for having us here and giving us an opportunity to to do this live. We're doing it live. Yeah. Um, with you guys and it's been fun to again commune with with you all you know we've both already learned stuff this weekend that we're going to apply to our own aquariums and i hope you guys are enjoying the show want to thank everybody for for coming out